Put yourself in these shoes for just a moment. You are a slave. You're a human being, yes, but considered less than that by society and by your master, who is your owner. You are property, bought and sold, traded as a commodity, used as a tool, treated as an appliance rather than a person. It's the first century AD, and slavery is extremely common. Far more slaves in the Roman Empire than citizens. As slaves, to some extent, are part of the household. They're often skilled workers, some well-educated, some business-minded, yet all, by definition, denied their freedom and possessed by another person. Put yourself in these shoes, a slave who has done something wrong against his master, stolen from him, for instance, and now living in fear of reprisal. Because that's the done thing. No punishment is beyond the law, physical abuse in beating, even up to summary execution. When you are somebody's property, they do not value your life or your liberty. You've run away from your master, understandably so, it must be said. If you were to go back, it may well be the last thing you would ever do. You're hopeless, helpless, out of options, in need of mercy. Put yourself in those shoes for just a moment. And then imagine this. Imagine that you meet a man who is a preacher and now a prisoner. Imagine that this man writes down on a sheet of parchment just 335 words in Greek and rolls it up and hands it to you and tells you to take it to your master and assures you that it will be okay. Imagine having the confidence to trust him. Imagine believing that everything has changed with such certainty that you are willing to stake your life on a few words in a short letter on a piece of parchment hand-delivered to the man who has every legal right to have you killed on sight. Brother, sister, friend, do not underestimate this letter of the Apostle Paul to Philemon. It is nothing less than spiritual dynamite. It's explosive in its message. It blows away the old way of doing things. It announces that everything is different now in Christ Jesus. It is pure gospel through and through. And we have the privilege of unpacking it together this lunchtime. I want to do something really simple in these minutes that follow. I want to look at each of the three main actors in this drama in turn and to see what it means for them to live in the light of the cross of Christ. We start with Onesimus. As we read this letter to Philemon, we're hearing one side of the story told from a certain remove. We've got to do just a little bit of detective work to see what the background is. Onesimus is a slave. He's owned by Philemon. And in a sense, this letter is all about him. Paul is writing on behalf of Onesimus because he was a man in need of help. And we know from verse 15 that Onesimus has been separated from Philemon. It is highly likely that he's run away. And we know from verse 18 that some wrongdoing has taken place that has cost Philemon. It is highly likely that Onesimus has stolen from him. What we don't know 
is how Onesimus ended up meeting the Apostle Paul. Paul at this point is in prison, really more of a house arrest. One of two scenarios is likely to be true. Either Onesimus has deliberately gone looking for Paul in order to ask him to advocate on his behalf, or Onesimus has ended up meeting Paul by pure coincidence. Well, either way, it is clear that this is a work of divine providence. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul makes his appeal in verse 9. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And Paul literally writes, whom I birthed in my chains. It's a graphic illustration of the most significant spiritual transformation. In short, Onesimus has become a Christian. Paul never mentions the cross in this letter, but the gospel of grace in the Lord Jesus is the foundation on which everything he writes is built. It's the stage on which this drama plays out. Onesimus had a moment of conversion. On a visit to Paul's home prison, Onesimus heard about the God of the Bible stepping into human history in the flesh in order to bring those who were enemies of God into friendship with God. He heard how those who had even the lowest status in society could be given the highest status from God as one of his children. He heard how those who were guilty of wrongdoing could have their sins paid for and be considered right before God. He heard and he trusted, and he came to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. It's no exaggeration to say that everything changed for Onesimus in that moment. Suddenly he was able to see the world through a different lens and it transformed his outlook. We don't know whether Onesimus was a habitual thief or whether his wrongdoing was a one-off. Perhaps he ran away from Philemon when he was caught stealing, or it's possible that he stole from Philemon in order to run away. Whatever the circumstances, that past sin has now been put firmly behind him. His attitude and behaviour will be different now. We get a hint of that in verse 11. Uh, Paul writes, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. We miss a little wordplay in the translation here. The name Onesimus means useful. It was a common or rather demeaning name for slaves in the ancient Greek world. Paul plays a pun on the name. Useful the slave had become useless to Philemon. But things are different now. He's a new man. And maybe, maybe there is an application for us here as we seek to be Christian disciples in our workplaces. Maybe in the best sense of the word, we ought to strive to be useful to our masters or our managers or whoever it might be. At the very least, strive not to do them wrong and more positively to seek to do good as we work wholeheartedly with the relationships and the responsibilities that we've been given. 
But I think we're selling ourselves short if we stick to surface-level moralizing about the example of Onesimus, because it's not just his work ethic that changes; it is the whole way he carries himself as a Christian believer. As this drama plays out, we see how his life itself is now cross-shaped. Consider what it would take for a person in Onesimus's position to be prepared to go back to his master. Onesimus is a victim here. Remember, he's a slave, and that counts him among the most marginalized and abused people in human history. Already considered worthless, now literally far away. Onesimus must have been tempted to give up hope. He must have been bitter about his situation in life. He must have felt resentment towards his slave-owning master. He must have felt self-pity as his fortunes went from bad to worse and his prospects looked bleak. And Onesimus is a rebel too. He's done wrong and he is guilty and he possesses nothing in himself to atone for his sin, either with Philemon or with God himself. But then, in Jesus, he finds the grace of God that meets him in his deepest need and does for him what he could never do for himself. He receives the love of God in Christ Jesus, the greatest love there is. And therefore, Paul can write of him that he is his very heart in verse 12. In the death of Christ on his behalf, he has his sin covered. He has his status changed too. He's made a child of God and a sibling in the family of faith. Possessing nothing, he is given everything given confidence to stand right before God and therefore given confidence to stand as an equal partner in the gospel with both the apostle Paul and his master Philemon. When you know that about yourself, then you start showing in your life the transformation that has taken place for you at the cross of Christ when you know that you were an enemy of God and have now become friends with God. So you start making friends out of enemies with one another. That's what the gospel does to you. It frees you up to admit your mistakes and your failings. It frees you up to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It frees you up to pursue peace and reconciliation and righteousness. It frees you up to stand secure in Christ, come what may from those around you. This was brought home to me personally some years ago. I was talking with an older Christian friend who asked me what I thought made a good Christian housemate. He might have said a good Christian colleague. I gave him a long list of sins that a good Christian ought to avoid so that others would see that they were godly. And he listened. And then he said, I think a good Christian housemate is being the one who says sorry the most. He might have learned that from an Esmus. That is cross-shaped living. 
secure in Christ and our acceptance before God in him means that we're able to say sorry both to God and to one another. Humble always, but confident too. Those who know the gospel of grace live in a cross-shaped way. Well, I've used most of my time here thinking about Onesimus. He deserves the bulk of our attention, I think. But in the few moments we have left, I want to see this cross-shaped living in those other actors too. Let's have a quick look at Philemon and see what we can learn from him. A Philemon, probably a leader in the house church in Colossae, or at least its host, uh, he gets a strong write-up from the Apostle Paul in the opening verses of this letter. It would make many people blush to read it. A glance at verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Well, what a wonderful thing to be able to say of somebody. You have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. I wonder if you know anyone like that. They're great people to have as friends. They're great people to have as members of your church congregation. It's a wonderful affirmation of Christian character. I think of a few people who are close to me of whom I can say that, and I give great thanks to God for them. And it is precisely because of the strength of Philemon's Christian character that Paul feels able to make this appeal to him. He says as much in verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Well, there's a real subtlety to what Paul does here. He reminds Philemon of his authority. He could give him orders, but instead he chooses to appeal to his love. It's his God-given love that has come to him by grace alone. What Paul is saying, in effect, is you are a Christian believer. You know the gospel. We love seeing the grace at work in your life. So think Christianly about this situation. And then, and only then, Paul mentions Onesimus by name and begins to make his appeal. Now we've got to ask, what was that appeal? What was Paul actually asking Philemon to do? In the first instance, it's clear that he was asking Philemon to receive Onesimus back with a transformed relationship. The two had been enemies of one another, alienated and distant from one another. But Paul says something fundamental has changed now. 
Maybe you were enemies before, but now your relationship status is different. You are family now. Look at how Paul puts it in verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother, he's very dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul is a great writer and a great student of the human heart. He knows how to make his point most powerfully to Philemon. He uses much the same language to describe Philemon and Onesimus. They are both dear to him. They are both brothers. And Paul goes further. He speaks of Onesimus in the same way he speaks of himself. So he says at verse 17, So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And then in verse 22, And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. In other words, I, the apostle, and he, your errant slave, have the same status. You ought to view us the same way. Welcome him as you would welcome me. And by the way, I know you've been praying for an opportunity to welcome me. Well, here is your chance to welcome him. It's a profoundly subversive message for the culture of the day. At the cross, Social status is obliterated. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And because each one of us comes to Christ equally dependent, equally in need of his grace and mercy, so the hierarchy is flat in the kingdom of God. As Paul wrote elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But is there more still, I wonder? Does Paul expect Philemon to take his slave back as a slave only, status quo? I think Paul hints quite heavily, actually, that Philemon ought to consider Onesimus as a slave no longer. That's the inference I think Philemon was invited to make in verse 16. Uh, That you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. One of the mottos of the abolitionist movement in the 18th century echoed those words, am I not a man and a brother? And what would Philemon have understood from verse 21 and the request there? Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. The theologian Michael Bird writes on this, Paul was no William Wilberforce, but without Paul, we might never have had William Wilberforce. And another writer, F.F. Bruce, 
puts it this way, Philemon brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. I expect that as Philemon read this letter, he came to the only conclusion that a gospel-hearted person could, that he was to receive Onesimus back as a brother, no longer as a slave. Yet it is his gospel-heartedness, his cross-shaped attitude that would enable him to see his fellow man so differently to how he had before. His perspective needed to change, and so might ours. Recognizing ourselves as in no way superior to our neighbor, loving those with whom we once had a grievance, welcoming home those with whom we were once alienated, and more so, forgiving and being forgiven as those who know the greatest forgiveness of all, which comes from God in Christ. So as I close, a final word on the cross-shaped life of the Apostle Paul himself. Paul knew what reconciliation was all about. He himself had been an enemy of God's, one who persecuted the church actively. He knew what it was to be far away, but he knew what it was to be brought near. As he confessed his sin and turned from it, he knew the great undeserved forgiveness that is offered only in the person of Christ. And so it is no wonder that Paul sees these two brothers of his, Onesimus and Philemon, in a cross-shaped way. Here are two people who are enemies of one another and distanced because of it. Here are two people where wrong has taken place and a cost has been incurred. Here are two people who ought to consider one another family. So Paul steps in. Quite literally, Paul puts himself in the middle of this situation. He acts as a peacemaker and a mediator, but more than that, he offers to make up the loss himself. He says in verse 18, if he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back not to mention that you owe me your very self. Here is a man who knows the gospel through and through and so will view his relationships in the light of it. Here's a man who will live in a truly Christ-like way, in a cross-shaped way. It is one of service and of self-sacrifice for the sake of his friends. The great reformer Martin Luther said of this, Even as Christ did for us with God the Father, so Paul also does for Onesimus with Philemon. And he said elsewhere, We are all the Lord's Onesimi. So where does this leave us? Well, I hope it gives us some ethics for life in the workplace. It shows us the value of being useful. It shows us the sin of injustice. It shows us the godliness of the pursuit of equality. It cannot do less than that. 
but it does something more still. This little letter shows us how to live cross-shaped lives, to find ourselves rooted firmly in our status in Christ, to be people of forgiveness both given and received, to be people of reconciliation both offered and accepted, to be people of generous and genuine self-sacrifice for the sake of others. It shows us to be Christ-like. Let me give the final word to the former bishop, Tom Wright. He says this of Philemon. It is stretching the point only a little to suggest that if we had no other first century evidence for the movement that came to be called Christianity, this letter ought to make us think something is going on here. Something is different People don't say this sort of thing. This isn't how the world works. A new way of life is being attempted. And I wonder for us, for this week and for the week ahead, well, maybe we ought to be those who attempt to live that way of life. A grace-shaped life, a cross shaped life, a Christ-like life. May we be those who attempt to live it. And with that in mind, let me say a word of prayer as we close our time together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Thank you for sins forgiven and for enemies being made friends. And we pray now this lunchtime and in the days ahead, that you would equip us by your spirit to trust in our place in Christ and to live in the light of it, to live as Christ-like people. Give us the grace to do it, we pray, in his holy name. Amen.